It was cold in the valley this time of year, but untouched, closer to nature than most parts of Southern California. Night walked on haunches, triggering the wildlife to speak loudly like it did most nights, until all sounds stopped entirely, replaced with an intelligent and oppressive silence. Sarah woke immediately and noticed a blue glow pushing in through the window above the headboard. She was frightened immediately, and kneeling on her pillow, she peered out the window. Her entire body shivered, and the light began to sway back and forth. Fearing that it was a motorcycle gang she had seen in the area earlier that day, she woke Jan up. Jan got up and headed for the closet to get her robe. Sarah looked at the clock. 2 a.m. When she looked again, it said 2.20. 20 minutes had gone by in the blink of an eye, only it wasn't 20 minutes. It was more like 2 hours and 20 minutes. The clock actually read 4.20 a.m. A full-blown panic set in, and her first thought was to get the cat and dog and get the hell out of there. Bursting through the bedroom door, she found them under their heater in a trance-like state. They fled for the house of Jan's foster parents. But before they left, Jan was given pause. Near the bushes on the western side of the garage, superimposed against the dark green leaves, was a silhouette. The head and shoulders of a figure were distinct. It had long hair. They returned to their cabin two days later, the oppressiveness of the entire event still clinging to the walls. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is the Our Strange Skies Podcast. Welcome, everyone, to a very special edition of the Our Strange Skies podcast. Uh, we're talking abductions, and you can't really talk an abduction without having Rich Adam on. So I got Rich Adam. He's here. What's up, man? Hey, man. How's it going? You know, it's it's going great, going well. Uh, we're, you know, kicking butt, all that good stuff. And uh, that's just uh, that's just how we do around here, you know? It's been about a year because I think we did this right at the beginning of the quarantine and now we're at the one year anniversary. Yeah, it's it's about there. And uh, yeah, we talked about the North Canal Road abduction situation. Oh, right, right. Oh, God. (laughs) That was a weird one, man. That was definitely a weird one. And then you kind of took a break for a while. You kind of kind of had to step back and take a breath. I, I disappeared for a, for a hot minute, but but we're back doing doing our thing and 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 we've got something really special for people this week. Something it's an abduction accounts counts really that has kind of fallen through the cracks. Nobody talks about this case. I'm wondering if it's just 
because of Andruffle's reputation following this case and kind of how things went because um Andruffle is most famously uh known for writing the book How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. Right. Now, now I okay, a couple things about Andruffle. Um she passed away just this last July, I think, maybe June. Yep. Um it turns out she lived three blocks from my house right here in Pasadena. Um, she lived on a street I almost moved on to, like this little random cul-de-sac. And we were looking at a house on that cul-de-sac. It would have been even weirder, but she was a local. And I didn't really know about her until I read this book and then started uh, doing some in- slight investigation. But one of the reasons she wrote that book was based on the information that she learned in this case, right? Yeah. After investigating this case, her career trajectory kind of changed a little bit. Uh, She had been one of NICAP's earliest investigators. She started investigating this phenomenon in 1957, right at the start of uh, NICAP. And it was around 1973 that she jumped ship. She went to MUFON and the, the nature of her investigation kind of changed. Like uh, I I was on uh, another podcast, the what if podcast, and we talked about the uh, alien brain case from um, Palos Verdes. And uh, it was right. 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 The brain in the road. Yeah. 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 This uh, that investigation was happening around this time. So, you know, it's um, the weird happenstance that happens like that. But it just seemed like her career kind of like took a turn and it's like, oh, there's this abduction thing. That's interesting. You know, that's interesting. And that I think definitely affected her to the point where. Following the investigation of this case, which is called the Tohunga Canyon Contacts, she started to really delve into cases of people who had fought off aliens during an alien abduction. Right. That they tried to, well, they basically tried to challenge one of the, one of what we know as a, almost like a bedrock precept of the abduction phenomenon, which is you have no control over mm-hmm. it, which I'd pretty much taken as gospel. But then apparently there are a couple of, there are a handful of cases where people seem to have been, had some agency during the process of the abduction. Yeah. And it just seems like it it bleeds kind of into the idea of sleep paralysis. The idea that if you couldn't just get like your finger to move, that everything will disappear and you'll be in your bedroom again. And there are elements of that in this, but like, I'm all for the old fashioned stories of, uh, you know, like Travis Walton getting up off the table and punching an alien in the face. It's nice. It's uh, it's convenient, (laughs) but it doesn't always happen like this. And this book uh, originally was published in 1980. I actually have I've got my my copy of the original uh, here with me. And nice. This is it came out a year before. Bud Hopkins' Missing Time, which was the book that put the phenomenon on the map. And about six years after that, when Whitley Strieber came out with Communion, he came out with Intruders. That's when it was at its like peak. 
this is what the abduction right. phenomenon is. It doesn't deviate from this. It's very rigid in the way that it is. And this book, which is still in print today, The Anomalist actually did a reprinting of it, the Tahunga Canyon Contacts by Andruffel and uh, D. Scott Rogo. Let's just start getting into this thing because um, it started with one witness, uh, and every witness in this case is under a pseudonym, uh, and her name was... Sarah Shaw, she had memories of this incident going back to 1953, which is also kind of another interesting thing because it just seemed like abductions, they were happening in in the late 50s, the 60s, the 70s, but it always felt like a 1980s phenomenon, which is very weird. It's almost like you discard the original dates of when these abductions occur, but it just seems like 1953, when this original incident happened, it just seemed like ancient history. I don't know. Yeah. Well, I've got, um, remember that book I was bragging about where a guy had, it was, the book was published, I think in the fifties or sixties, but it was about an abduction account that occurred to him in the twenties. I mean, it's so weird that we on the one hand, we're like, oh, Jacques Vallée and Magonia and angels and aliens and, you know, the Fey people and all this stuff is the same thing. And it's been going on forever. And yet when we talk about abductions, it's like, oh, yeah, well, that happened, you know, mm-hmm. post 70s. And it's like, well, no, if it's ever happened ever, it's been happening forever. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that when Whitley Strieber published Communion, I think it kind of got an entire reset because it, it definitely always seemed like it was an isolated incident and it happened this one time and it never happened again. Or if it did, the folks that were researching this just discounted it entirely. They discount, most of them discounted the uh, later contacts that Betty Hill claimed to have the contacts that Charles Hickson, one of the Pascagoula guys later claimed to have, but it just seemed like it took to the eighties to get to that point where more and more contacts were like even normal from that standpoint. Well, and, and we want, we want stories to have a beginning and an end. Mm -hmm. And anytime someone who is part of a very famous abduction account, then continues to talk about further abductions for some reason, it always feels like, come on, dude, that we believe the one. Okay, that was a yeah. very, very cool story. You don't have to say, oh, it happened again last night. And yet, in the same breath, we know that, that people who have these experiences do have them more than once. They often have them throughout their entire lives. Whether they remember them consciously or not is a whole other thing. But it is funny how we can hold two pieces of information in our brain at the same time, but listen to one and not the other. Absolutely. So. You live like what twenty minutes away from where these events happened, or so. So can you yeah. can you just describe like the Tahunga area and, and what it's like? Yeah, I like the way you said it too, because in Los Angeles we don't live miles from places; we live minutes from places. Mm-hmm. It, it makes no sense for me to say Santa Monica is nineteen miles from my house. That means nothing. I'm not using a helicopter, so. What do I care how far away it is as the crow flies? It's how long it takes to get there. So 19 miles west takes an hour and 45 minutes at rush hour, whereas 19 miles east may take 19 minutes. So yeah, 
the freeway, the 210 freeway that would get you up to Tahunga and you take like the, the Sunland exit. And by the way, this area is much more developed now than it was in the 50s, which is now 70 years ago. Mm-hmm. Which is weird to think. Right. <laughs> but what you want to picture as to what it looks like, because I was trying to think, well, how can I describe this? And yes, it's a canyon, but it's not the Grand Canyon. And it's not exactly sandy desert. So if anyone within the sound of my voice listening to this episode has ever seen an episode of the A-Team. <laughs> okay? Yep. In almost every episode, it feels like they're sort of driving out in some area where there's sort of like these brown hills. Yep. And there's a highway. And they kind of – and then, you know, a car flips over. And and it's it's, you know – there's like hills around, but it's mostly a highway and, and the vegetation is is like dark green if it exists at all and kind of sage brushy looking. Yep. If you think about that kind of topography, then you're pretty close to Big Tahunga Canyon, which might be a, a bit more dramatic. The hills might rise a bit more on the side of the highway and then dip off a little bit more, um, but not more than you know, a couple hundred feet on either side of you. So we're not talking mountains. And I drove up uh, Big Tahunga Canyon. And I got to tell you, it, it it does not feel like you're in Los Angeles. It feels like you are an hour outside of Los Angeles. It feels much more like San Bernardino, Fontana, Rialto, that sort of area. And you you get off the freeway, you drive through the main, you know, street, which of course has grocery stores and gas stations and, you know, Target and Home Depot. And then you make a left and you only have to go about a mile and then you're on this little mountain highway and you can go way, way on up there. And now you're kind of in a fairly remote area. I mean, even now in 2021, still fairly remote. The houses are not cheek to jowl. You're driving along and then there's a archery range and then you drive a little further and there's a little turnoff for hiking or camping. So you very quickly return to coyote land, as I like <laughs> to put it. That's fair. That's I think that's a fair assessment. Y- using the A-Team as a descriptor just brings me back to my childhood and uh, watching uh, syndicated reruns of it like every weekend with my father. It was great watching that, watching Knight Rider, you know, just getting that whole aesthetic. But instantly when you said that, I knew exactly what you were saying. <laughs> well, you know, those were those were the days when they filmed almost every show that you saw on primetime television in Los Angeles. This is before the migration north into um, Vancouver and Toronto for cheaper filming. Yeah. Now a lot of stuff films up in Canada, but back in the eighties, when you think of shows like Hardcastle and McCormick and, you know, I mean, really any of the shows, Equalizer, Moonlighting, Riptide, Remington Steel, all those shows, Simon and Simon, they were all being filmed in the LA basin. They would have to go again, you know, 20 minutes out. So you didn't get, you know, city streets. But that's all it took. And then you're in a pretty remote area. That's what L.A. is like. So with this case, it started with an incident of missing time and and, and how an event like that can eat away at you. And for Sarah Shaw, she contacted Ann Druffel, who was a you know local researcher in the area. She had by that time, I think, had worked her way up in the uh, California chapter of MUFON, might have even been state director at that time. I'm not exactly sure. But 
the missing time aspect, I don't think was hugely well known at the time. Like there was Betty and Barney Hill and Pascagoula, but it didn't seem to be that huge a thing, but it definitely stuck out to her. And it was one of the things that caused her to take an interest in the case. And it should be noted, she contacted her on August 5th, 1975. This is three months before the Travis Walton incident even took place. So, you know, missing time is not a really popular feature of this phenomenon, unless you're really into it. And you're just like an absolute hardcore researcher in 1975. All of which speaks to the, um, the the authenticity of the case. People reporting things that were not well known at the time. This incident took place March 22nd, 1953. And at the beginning of this episode, you guys heard basically the breakdown of it. But the short end is that Sarah Shaw was living with a woman named Jan Whitley at the time. And uh, there was uh, on March 22nd. The, she woke up in the middle of the night. She saw this like intense light that was coming through her window above the uh, headboard. And when she did, she got freaked out. She had said that there were these motorcycles that she had spotted in the area like earlier that day. And she feared it was like a motorcycle gang coming to, you know, just break down the doors and all that stuff. <laughs> and, and I can yeah, kind of understand. I said, as I said, the A-team. Yeah, yeah, definitely. You know, uh, a crack commando unit who was sent to military court for a crime they didn't commit. Absolutely. Uh, you did that vibe 100%. But when she saw it, she like kneeled on the bed. She was looking out the window and, and it started, this light started to sway, which was very, it definitely stood yeah, out. So the because, light was like swaying back and forth, like a, yes. like she saw something moving back and forth. Yeah. Which reminds me of the, the the falling leaf pattern of certain UFOs and also sort of what you do with a watch to hypnotize someone. Yeah, this very archaic um, way of, of doing that, which I, I think these aliens generally just use lights now because we seem to have a certain reaction to lights, <laughs> you know. But hey, you know. If, hey, they're changing with the times. You know? They are. They are. They definitely are. As she's looking out this window at this light, she she wakes up Jan and Jan is getting up and she's going toward the closet to get her robe. But when Sarah turns around and looks at the clock, she realizes that 20 minutes have just gone by without any cause for it. It's just instantaneously happened. But she actually mistook the time. It wasn't 20 minutes. It was actually two hours and 20 minutes. And it was 4.20 a.m. Blaze it, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> Look now you're suggesting the aliens are familiar with our drug uh slang and uh, you know I'll, I'll i'll entertain that theory hey man uh if this is the only place that you can get it well i mean you're you're gonna drop in <laughs> on random residents to see if they got some chronic and you know just in in the house but F frankly i mean we, we should pause for a second and talk about why any human being would live in big tahunga canyon and i i think you've actually hit on one of the reasons i think people felt and still feel that they're a little bit remote they're removed mm -hmm. from you know polite society they can go up there and live the way they want and back in the day if that meant um you know drug use then that was great um also alternative lifestyle which is a part of this story and oddly in the book doesn't even get articulated mm -mm. until the very end but all the way through i'm like 
wait, there's something going on here in these relationships. But since it was never actually spoken in the book, I'm like, oh, I don't know. Maybe I'm just bringing something to this. Yeah, exactly. What you're going to find in in this story is that every one of these women are part of the LGBTQ plus community. They're with the kind of exception of Sarah. It just seemed like, I don't know, just like the attitude that they presented in there. It was like they made it seem like it was a lifestyle and then she moved on from it. But yeah, it is definitely something that is not approached until you get to the end and it's barely given anything. And the theories that are presented in this case, those sections of the book made me like scratch my head because they just didn't seem to fit with what they were presenting here. One was very uh, skewed to believe in the religious side, her religious side of things. And the other one was looking at it more from a parapsychological perspective. And they both, at least uh, D. Scott Rogo, who um, is kind of like the silent partner in this case, he's there, he's writing portions of the book, but it's not exactly clear how much investigation he actually put forth in this case. But right. he's was the first person to admit that when they wrote uh, an update for this case in the, in 1988, that he was wrong. Like his theories did not fit uh, what was happening in, in this case at all. Which is interesting. And I think, I think that, you know, it's, it's commendable for people to, you know, go back and reevaluate things. I mean, Look, and I know we're, we're sort of jumping to the end before doing the beginning, mm-hmm. but but just in terms of the way the book is structured, at the end, each one of them sort of says, okay, well, you know, I'm going to sum up and here's here's the conclusion I'm going to reach. And frankly, I don't even know if that's necessary. No. I, I think it's, it's, you know, it's kind of cool to look back and go, here are some things I observed about this case. Mm-hmm. But, to it, but that feeling like, well, I need to explain this. I, I, first of all, I need to have an overall working theory of what these experiences are. And then through that theory, I'm going to now diagnose and explain why these people had these experiences, man. I think that's, that's a step too far. Yeah. I, 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 and and what's the point? I agree. And specifically when it comes to Ann Druffel, her section of that book is just basically her laying out every theory that she's ever had about the phenomena. It's kind of frustrating because it's like uh, it barely focuses on like the actual events in the case, but it's more becomes about here's my Christian worldview on this. Here is ancient astronaut theory here's every other theory that i can sling at the wall here oh yeah there was a case that i was investigating here here's how i think it fits into some of this but ultimately does not fit anywhere and honestly it contains really dated descriptions of neanderthals and early anatomically modern humans we don't call them cro-magnons anymore <laughs> you know <laughs> like that was the weirdest well, thing oh, it's reading a book wait and- a second am i am i being un pc by <laughs> using the term cro-magnon what what's the new what what is it pro-magnon now what, what, no, what are they just, calling it now they just call them anatomically modern humans that's that's it that that's really it the 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 AMHs yeah pretty much pretty much 
But her theories about Neanderthals were completely wrong because we have done so much. There's been so much more, you know, work, uh, uh, archaeological evidence and, and research into them. And she paints them as these just like savages that were dumb and died off, even though like. Well, was that but was that known at the time or is that stuff we've discovered since then? I, or? I, I don't uh, like I took a class on Neanderthals in college. And I think even in... Well, that was quite some time ago. Yeah, well, it was like a decade ago. Let's let's take it easy. Let's <laughs> oh, okay, all right. <laughs> but... But 30 years after she was writing her essay. Yeah, but I think even at the time, I don't think they were that far down in the chain. But I, I could be wrong about that. I In 1988, when that uh, book was published, The Rehash, I was five years old, so... You know, that is what it is. Right. Two days after this incident, Sarah and Jan got out of the house immediately after this event took place. And they ended up staying with Jan's uh, foster parents for it was like it was I think it was like almost two weeks or so. But uh, they initially returned to the cabin two days later with a friend, Emily Cronin, who is going to become part of the story. And there's a, an elderly neighbor named Jack that uh, also just accompanies them in. And immediately, Jack said he felt strong vibes in this house. So, um, yeah, yeah, Jack was feeling strong vibes. <laughs> he was definitely feeling strong vibes. Years later, Emily uh, claimed to feel the same thing. The reason that they brought Emily is because I guess she was kind of unflappable. She didn't scare easy. But what's interesting here is the uh, trajectory of, of Sarah's careers and how she just kind of became dissatisfied. And this seems to be kind of a feature in abduction accounts where people just become really disillusioned with what they do um, and their like work at the time. So she was a, an assembly line uh, worker and she huh. opted out to become a medical dental assistant. That's hard to believe anyone growing disillusioned with being an assembly line worker. Oh yeah, man. It's like we're living in the 1920s all over again. God damn. It sounds like, um, like uh, near death experiences, you know, the, you know, you, yep. you, you go through something and then your your life sort of heads down a new road. Now, but let's be clear about something. At this point, the next morning and then in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath, they don't have any memory of what happened. Nope. nope. They woke up, they saw a light, they felt something, you know, they felt emotions of, you know, alarm and possibly fear. Then suddenly they realized time has gone by. That's all they know at this point. Yep. That's it. They're... Okay. There's always that ling those lingering feelings that experiencers seem to have following whatever experience they have, whether that's the development of certain fears and stuff like that, which doesn't seem to play into this case. But extreme dissatisfaction with your station in life is definitely at work here. And two years after the incident itself, Sarah recalled how um, she had this vision and it was about a cure for cancer, which is where like this kind of story gets. It has some wonky elements to it. And this this is definitely one of them. But she had this vision of a, a common household item, which is just vinegar and how um, if applied to a tumor with a Q-tip or if it's like injected into the tumor itself, it'll cause it to shrink. And she kept the stuff to herself for years until she eventually told 
an, an oncologist who kind of just dismissed it. Right. But she had a compelling feeling. Yeah. Somehow she felt that, that she would know yeah. who to tell this information to. Now, again, for her at this moment, this insight was not connected to the events of that night. No. It was almost like, oh, I this this is received information that's just sort of coming to me separate and apart from that night, that event, right? It was just sort of yeah. like it came to her in her everyday life that she knew what this was, but she didn't know how she knew. Right. And then later on, she found out, right? Right. All right. And then 1959, she actually ended up moving to the Southwest. She became a, a coroner's secretary, and she did this so she could just learn as much as she could about the human body until she eventually quit and then returned to uh, hospital care. So she's kind of just bouncing around a lot of careers in medicine, although not exactly going the full step to becoming a doctor. She's just like trying to learn as much as she can in a short amount of time. At least that's that's what it seems like to me. And then in the 1970s, uh, she kind of settled down. She got married. And then in 75, it just this bout of missing time just ate at her so much that she had to contact somebody about it. So after contacting Andruffle, and the investigation beginning, they ended up tracking down Jan Whitley, who was still living in Tohunga Canyon in just a slightly different area. They described Jan as objective, intelligent, and honest. And all of these uh, witnesses just seem like really good people, for lack of a better phrase for it. Right. But um, yeah. in 1975, at the time, she was diagnosed with breast cancer. She was undergoing a mastectomy. And she was under the care of a, a gentleman by the name of Dr. Joseph Alini, who was an oncologist who specialized in supplementing nutrition and other kind of supplements to reduce the risk of uh, reoccurring cancer. And he generally treated his patients with food supplements, minerals, vitamins, and a drug that was called Latril. Latril is actually uh, amygdalin. And amygdalin basically is, um, it's kind of like a natural version of, uh, you can find it in many different uh, types of uh, citrus fruits and stuff like that. But it basically creates cyanide, uh, hydrogen cyanide, which the body breaks down into uh, cyanide. Uh, it's right. A, it's a, you need a daily, a certain daily amount of cyanide yeah. every day. Yeah. Every day I take it. I take a cyanide supplement every day. Yeah. It was at this point that uh, when Sarah was told the doctor that she was seeing, she claimed that it, that was the doctor she had to tell these secrets to. This is just kind of secondary kind of stuff. She later claimed that she actually had precancerous skin lesions or something like that, that she ended up putting vinegar on. And apparently these precancerous tumors or growths or whatever ended up shrinking and disappearing. So... Well, the the one guy, the one doctor said that in theory, mm -hmm. it made a kind of sense that cancers grow in these sort of alkaline environments. They will not thrive in a more, you know, vinegar based system. Yeah. <laughs> it's like if you take a lot of vinegar right. now, there's no, they've not found a one to one. It's just like, you know, it's not like spraying raid on a bunch of ants, you know, it, it doesn't mm -hmm. work like that. But 
But what it does bring up, I mean, this is not the first time a human being has received what they believe is legit scientific information from a non-human source. And people have been doing, you know, getting messages from ghosts and through seances and in visions and from channeled entities and also UFO occupants. To my understanding, there has never, ever been a single bit of usable scientific human knowledge that has come from these sources. If it was, it would be revolutionary. We don't even put stock into what Bob Lazar is saying. Like Element One Fifteen is a bust. We 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 know that, but it it just seems like when somebody starts talking about scientific advances that the aliens are giving them, that's when uh, yeah, the case kind of just turns a little sour. But right. we're gonna push that aside. That's all we're going to mention of this because it really just doesn't play a part. This is just... And frankly, to a non-disclosure guy like myself, it it's just another room in the house of, oh, crashed disks and reverse mm-hmm. engineering and Area 51 and Dreamland and all of the tech we have. And it's like... I, 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 don't, uh, I don't put a lot of stock in that either. Um, I, I would, in fact, I would say the only place that that you know the door is still a little bit ajar for me in terms of this stuff are the implants. Just because I haven't really yeah. studied the implants, but again, even that f- seems elusive. Even the cases where it's like, oh no, something was there, and it's you know it makes absolutely no sense. It's really hard to document this stuff because people you, who are doctors and and in these sort of scientific realms. They're they're loath to put their names on like, yeah, oh, yeah, we talk about implants all the time. We understand exactly how they work. We understand what should be there and what shouldn't <laughs> be there. And it's like there's always this yeah. gap between what the writer, the, the abductee says about their implant situation and what anyone else will ever really publicly confirm. It just seems like the more materialistic things become, the less interesting they seem. Yep. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. After meeting with Sarah, Andruffel's next course of uh, action here was to find her a hypnotist. And they did in a man named Dar- Dr. Martin Reiser. He was a police psychologist uh, and he, he had a good reputation and he conducted one session on December 5th, 1975. It seemed like with a lot of these witnesses, they seemed to at first struggle with um, going into a trance. But once Sarah really got into it, uh, she started to recall how these figures just started walking toward their house as this experience was happening. And, uh, you know, one of them kind of was just like holding back. And uh, in the next moment, they were just kind of walking through a kitchen door, not even opening it, just going right through the door. Uh, yeah, it's it's really rude. Like these aliens, they just come through walls. They go through doors without opening them. It's kind of BS. And uh, <laughs> somebody should really... I'd like to hear an abduction account in which they lecture them about proper manners coming into a house, but I don't think we'll ever get that, you know? No, they do what they want. You know, they track, they track their space dust all over the carpeting. Yeah. It's, it's ridiculous. 
Sarah described her experience as if she was, uh, she felt like she was a child just being controlled by a parent. In a way, she was very kind of complicit in what was going on. Jan, on the other hand, was struggling. These beings were just trying to move her from one area to the next, and she was struggling every step of the way. By the way, this is Sarah's recollection of what she witnessed of Jan. Yes. But Jan herself... I don't believe she ever really, through hypnosis or consciously, recalled what her experiences were. Did she? No. And she seemed to be a a poor subject for hypnosis because uh, it it just seemed like when they got to the point where, you know, they were trying to get information, it was as if she didn't want to give it up. So. This is all definitely from Sarah's perspective, and they were escorted outside the cabin uh, about 50 yards. It was there that they saw this object hovering within this copse of trees, and I think the best way to describe it is uh, it looks like um, those fancy serving platters that you see on TV that are metal, and you've got the, the dome on top to keep the food warm, and you take it off. It looks exactly like that, except it's got a like a very skinny door in it. <laughs> right. Yeah, the stuff that, that like, again, from, like, 1970s TV shows, when you go to the fancy restaurant and they kind of whip that silver dome off the platter and there's your your lobster uh, thermidor. Yep. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, that is definitely the situation. And she described how when they were being transported, it, it was as if she wasn't walking. She was floating slightly above the road. And uh, she later described how she looked to be traveling on this like escalator made of white light, which is interesting. You know, you got, you got to get them in the craft somehow. And this, this definitely seems like, you know, that Jetsons kind of technology where they were being, you know, like basically on those uh, treadmill, like things and just going from one room to the next. It just seemed like that's what they were doing, but it was on like light itself. You know. Now, do you think, do you think their physical bodies were traveling or do you think it was their astral body or well, that's the, that's the part that I, I always sort of bump on is what, in other words, are, are, are the, Are these entities controlling the entire environment? In other words, we'll put it this way. No one, to my knowledge, has ever reported driving down a highway, looking off to the side, and seeing a physical human being floating up into an air uh, a UFO on on a on a column of light. So no one's ever witnessed that part. So then it's like, well, then maybe it's just taking place on this sort of consciousness level. But if it is, why does it even require that much transporting? Wouldn't it, Mm -hmm. wouldn't it be facilitated in, in, in a much simpler way? Is, Is it, is the light needed as a conveyance or can't you just sort of boom, 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 just you're, you're here, you're there. It always seems like the role that light plays in these stories just kind of gets downplayed or people don't understand what's going on. I think the light plays a part in how these people, I I think it definitely has to do with like an astral self leaving the body and going on uh, a craft of some kind. And, And that's what all of these women kind of suggest in their accounts is that it's not themselves that them totally physically leaving 
it's more of an astral self leaving the body and going forward. And I think light plays a heavy part in that and just how I don't know if I've ever come across a paper, but I do believe that using light in a certain, you know, in certain ways can cause people to like pass out and stuff like that. Oh, yeah. and I think that's kind of a similar thing in this case. Perhaps they have some technology that, you know, once they shoot this beam of light, they're able to just like take the soul from the body. Right. That's what it feels like. Like something about this light yeah. sort of facilitates getting the astral body out of the physical body. Right. But then here's the other weird part. But then suddenly the experiencer says, well, now I'm inside a craft and they're bringing me mm-hmm. for, from one room into another room, a physical room. And now I'm laying down on a table and they're examining my body. But what are they examining? Mm-hmm. If it's just the astral body, unless there is some physical aspect to an astral body, it's not just total... Right you know, immaterial thought to thought sort of thing. It's like, no, it is, there's, it's ectoplasm in other words, like there is some thing and, and the, and these, you know, aliens or intelligences exist in, in some sort of middle physicality. Mm -hmm. And, and that's what they're actually examining is the astral body but then you get into the weird thing about the implants. The thing that I wonder is um, because communication is key in cases like this, you are taking the bo- the soul from the body and you're doing stuff with it. But it just seems like the, the way that they're taken, they're escorted, they're examined and there's and, and all this stuff it just seems like something that the body is going to be able to relate later when it remembers stuff like this. That's the only thing that I can think of is that it's somewhere in this communication cycle between, you know, understanding and uh, just pure bafflement. You have this experience, which is kind of rooted in something that we can understand something that we can later remember and say that it it reminds me of this it reminds me of that otherwise i think these experiences would just be unintelligible in some way much more dreamlike you yeah very and they wouldn't make sense and that's the thing is like uh, a lot of these folks describe their experiences in dreamlike ways but they make a little more logical sense than most dreams do, which is, uh, which is interesting, you know, like in terms of, you know, from point A to point B to point C to point D, there is a logical progression that leads them in that direction. Whereas most dreams, I don't always have that. Right. And while there are archetypal images within dreams and, and certain kinds of dreams that people have a lot, um, these experiences seem far too similar to not have some physical aspect involved. Mm -hmm. And one of the interesting uh, things that Sarah says, um, as they're being escorted into the object, the door on this object is described as being very skinny. Like they literally have to turn their shoulders to get in. And apparently, yeah, the uh, due to Jan's um, uh, Sarah describes Jan as being very busty and having a tough time getting into the craft, but they eventually get her in the craft. And, and that is the one thing that was just like, 
what? <laughs> like, <laughs> wow. Yeah. Wait, right? wait, no. It's so weird. It's like, because that's, because it's the physical, it's the physical aspect of it. It's like, wait a second. Are you literally saying it was so, if it's so thin that yeah. you can't get through, but, but if it's your astral body. Right. Ah. Yeah, exactly. It's, it's one of those confusing things. And it's like, is this supposed to be relatable somehow? Like, <laughs> is this how we, is this how we relate our, our, our experiences to our physical bodies is in these really ridiculous ways in which we can't fit through skinny doors. <laughs> it's so weird. Jan just kept like struggling this entire time until at, at one point she just gets complacent and examination takes place. Sarah describes this object inside as like absolutely enormous. There's a big, huge dome inside. And uh, later on, she goes on to describe like a balcony with which one taller than uh, the average being is just standing up there and uh, looking over everything. And we haven't really described these beings. These beings are, they kind of seem like they should be muggers in a way. They're wearing these black, what seems to be black clothing. They're wearing these black, almost like ski masks. She describes how there's like eye circles and underneath if you're looking at their eyes, their their skin looks a little different color than the, the way that uh, it's being presented. But it does fit into this idea that, like, you know, they're muggers in, in kind of a way. And like, if you look at the drawings, with the exception of their proportions being very strange, they just look like people kind of wearing, you know, completely black outfits, which is, uh, you know, it's really interesting. Um, because it's not your archetypical gray. They're taller than that. You can't really see their facial features, but their head shapes are definitely what set them apart. Yeah, like like that's nightmare fuel right there. Like I'm definitely going to get you know mugged by these bastards right now. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not happy about it. And it's funny because the eyes aren't huge, but they are the only feature that appears on the face. So yeah, so they they they're dominating one way or the other. And it just seems like they, uh, yep the <laughs> the serving platter, the serving platter UFO. And, and here's somebody <laughs> getting the, uh, I believe that's the Moderna vaccine. Uh, maybe it Pfizer. might be the Moderna vaccine. Yeah, yeah. Sure. Um, it's it's tough to call, but uh, Sarah did describe how she was calmed down with an injection in her arm, which is very weird. Uh, again, f- bleeding into the physicality of these encounters and how do they translate where is like the translation here from soul body to physical body we're we're still working on that rich says he's got it figured out he's he's proclaimed that many times now and if you haven't take to twitter tell him that he's got this thing figured out yeah you know i mean i look i i i have figured it out I'd, I'd repeat it now, but what's the point you know i mean it is if if the world is not ready for the message yeah. i bring then yeah. then I can't it ain't it ain't gonna be any readier if I say it twice. Humanity's gotta catch up with me. And when it does, that, yeah. you know, that's that that's humanity's business. That ain't any of my business. Exactly. And I mean, they always talk about, hey, go land on the White House lawn. But if Rich goes to the White House lawn right now, the only thing he's gonna get is arrested, and we don't need that. Okay. Yeah. So it's not effective. No. So stop it. It's not gonna work. Sarah then goes on to describe how she's put on this table, but she's not laying on the table. She's like 
kind of floating slightly above it. She talks about how there's uh, an instrument that goes up uh, over her body. She describes it as an inverted anvil and it just kind of like scans her. That's kind of like her experience is like this machine scans her. Then the beings come over and they do a physical examination. Um, she described it like the um, practice of tagging cattle on a farm, which is a, a way that a lot of people describe their experiences. In a later hypnotic regression, didn't she recall being uh, branded or, or being like receiving a tattoo symbol. Uh, she described how at one point she was turned over and it was like the beings were tracing something into her back. I don't know if this was Sarah or if it was one of the other witnesses, but they described how it felt like someone was uh, tracing a symbol on her back. Yeah. That, that she was being marked in some way. I thought it was her, but yeah. uh, okay. I'll, I'll, maybe I'm wrong, but that, that was a new one because I haven't, I have you ever heard that before? No, nothing, nothing like that. That was, that was new to me. We're drawing sigils on experiencers backs, I guess. Yeah. You know? After this session. And, and the thing about this is there were a lot of, people who had ended up performing hypnosis on a, a number of these uh, individuals and Dr. Reiser, he'd like tagged out. I th he might've been freaked out with all the subduction stuff. And like, I'm not really the experienced guy for this job, but he's like, I'm not going to be able to get anything else from her. So he, he tags out. Yeah. And he did it, but he did a pretty good job. I thought he did a really good job. In fact, I would say uniformly the hypnosis that at least what's related of it in this book and much of the book is, relating various sessions of hypnosis. I, I think the, the hypnotists did a great job. They, they certainly, it, it never seemed like they were leading in a way that actually led anyone. Mm -hmm. There were several times when someone would say something, I'm sorry, the hypnotist would assert something or suggest something and the subject would say, no, not at all. Uh, it was not mm -hmm. that it was this. Which was reassuring because it didn't feel like they, the hypnotist wasn't saying, well, but what about the giraffes on the, on the, on the craft? And then the people are like, right. oh yeah, the giraffes. Yes, there were giraffes. Like that never <laughs> happens. I tend to think like a leading question is only as good as its answer. So yeah. Following this experience, Jan ended up coming forward telling, you know, what she remembered uh, of the time. And like, it, it seemed to fit in line with, with Sarah's initial assertions about the 1953 incident, but she related how she started to be plagued by dreams uh, since like 1956. Um, but she said they were more like vivid. They felt really like real and, uh, they generally started with a high pitch kind of noise. And uh, she's not the only one that's going to relate this. Uh, it just seems like uh, repeatedly, you know, high pitched noises came to be like a factor in this case. And yeah. it was also the way in which some of them were able to resist what was happening. Well, yeah, um, strangely enough, it gets into, uh, and again, this is something that I don't recall having heard a lot in other cases, but the, the, right. the presence of a very, like, like a kind of a grating high pitched noise that, that is, that the abductee relates to the effort of mind control from these entities. So 
that sound allows them to control you uh, to a certain extent. Mm -hmm. And then one of these experiencers said that if they could sing their own song stronger than mm-hmm. the than the exterior song being imprinted in their mind, that that allowed them to sort of come awake, and then the the entities would would dissipate. So, a haven't heard a lot about the high pitched wine being associated with mind control in that way, and two haven't heard really the notion of a person having an interior song. It just seems kind of like a new agey type of thing, you know, like uh, this is uh, metaphysical in some way. And this is how we transcend an experience like this. It it was one of the ways in which uh, the strangeness of this case just kind of like kept going up and up because it, it, it got more metaphysical. It got more holistic as it kind of went on with some of these witnesses and, uh, I think that's uh, definitely where, like, at least for me, where some of this stuff gets a little harder to accept. But again, that aspect in itself is what kind of influenced Andruffle to head in the research uh, methods and ways that she ended up going into. So, uh, you know, it, yeah. it has impacts on some people. I mean, I would say, well, it was the 70s, but it wasn't the 70s. It was the <laughs> 50s. Right, when they had right, the experiences, absolutely. it was the fifties, and and when yeah. they recalled them in the seventies through hypnosis, they were remembering thoughts and feelings they had in the fifties. So yeah, so it, it it I had to keep reminding myself of that. It's like oh, these events did not take place in the mid seventies, as much as I wanted them right. to, <laughs> as much as I right. wanted to picture Leonard Nimoy, you know describing them, you know, in real time on In Search Of. I'm like, no, no, this was in the 50s. I think that's one of the flaws of this book is that when talking about these 1950s experiences, you're not in that time. So you think you're experiencing it at the time that this book is being published and not in the 50s, which uh, Anne Druffel does make a point that with the silhouetted head with the long hair that Jan ended up seeing right. against the foliage that long hair was not a thing in uh, you know 1953 it didn't really become a thing until the 60s where dudes would have long hair you know summer above kind of stuff and uh, I guess that would be a, a feature that would stick out but I think the you know the whole thing kind of sticks out because in 53 you're talking about uh, an experience that was four years before the Antonio vs Boa subduction which is kind of like the first. Uh, often seen as the first uh, accredited abduction, the first abduction that was written about, you know, shortly after it happened. So, you know what I always think about? I, I, I'm like, when are we going to find the diary, like the like the Civil War era diary, mm. you know, of someone who's like, I'm, you know, d- just filled with their weird otherworldly experiences. You know, they happened. You know, they happened. They're happening all the time. You know, they happened, you know, to, you know, in the 1800s. And yet, other than just a sporadic, oh, in this newspaper, this report was made or something, there, there have to be just so many normal people who just mm-hmm. lived in rural areas throughout America who had these really weird experiences. And how did they explain them to themselves? How did they characterize them? 
what was that experience. And I keep thinking there's got to be diaries lying around where people just wrote this stuff down or letters where where people shared this information. It has to exist, right? There was uh, in, in the letters of H.P. Lovecraft, there is the story about how he had this dream in which he had an alien body uh, in this laboratory. It was not him himself. He was somebody else. There was another guy that he allegedly showed this body to. And the thing about it is some of the details of this were verifiable. Like the people that he claimed like the, because he was able to bring forth names and stuff like that. These people actually exist and they lived in the areas that he said he did that they said they did. I don't, I don't know. I don't put a lot of stock into it, but uh, if we're talking about, you know, like mystery airships, if that's the kind of signature of 1800s ufology, uh, which I don't necessarily think it is. There are other cases of a stranger craft than that being seen in the sky, but it's just like there's this intentional evolution uh, to the way that these crafts appear where they start as airships that uh, seem like they're invented by human beings. And then you get these uh, weird airplane like sightings in the 1910s to the 1930s. And then you kind of get the, uh, the more advanced structural craft. Someone has to have an abduction experience in the 1800s. Like it, it has to have happened. There is, the one story that was uh, related in John Winthrop's journal uh, in Massachusetts, the Massachusetts governor in like the 1600s of this guy who was in the boat and it, it kind of had the flair of an abduction account in which uh, he was in a boat with a couple other guys. They end up seeing this like luminous object in the sky. They describe it as looking like a like an illuminated uh, pig in a way. And it kept like going back and forth in the sky until uh, it's like a couple hours. And then uh, the way that it ends is that their boat is found miles back from where they started, which was going against the tide. So you've got that case, but it just seemed like the fifties boom, here's where it started. But that's like one of the weird things is like, why does this have an evolutionary, at least from our perspective, an evolutionary kind of trend to the way that it ramps up? Right. And like if that's the case, then going on with that? when are we going to have the saucers? I mean, we, we got the we got the blimps and the dirigibles pretty quick. We got the airplane yeah. pretty quick. But now we've been doing, you know, 80 years on on flying saucers and cigar shaped objects, but we don't have those yet. Right. We did the uh, the flying pancake that didn't you know work out for us? Uh, there were, there have been a few other you know like uh, patents that uh, you know have been popping up, but yeah, they just haven't. Well, I mean, I guess you've got the you know you've got the triangular craft and the stealth bomber, but th- those seem to be contemporaneous with each other. Yeah, I you know I I think in my head to like. 1947 you you got Kenneth Arnold seeing these things and like I just picture in my head like uh you know the that Marvin Berry character from Back to the Future and he's calling Chuck Berry to say you know that saucer you're looking for check this motherfucker out <laughs> <laughs> Jan would describe these high pitch sounds and in within them 
she she would describe like having this impression of a whole room full of these weird ass beings and um you know they were asking her to come with them and she would fight against them mentally telling them that they didn't want to go and you know it was just fighting off these beings constantly but the third witness in this case emily cronin back when they were trying to convince jan to come forward and do go under hypnosis she talked about how her and jan who had lived together for a while were coming back from going to lake isabella uh on just like a little vacation and how they were when they were returning home they had this very strange uh, incident on the road in 1956. Uh, and there, she was talking about uh, Ridge Route, which seemed to be like a really treacherous, you know, bit of road, which uh, it was very curvy and all that stuff and probably not a great place to drive at night. So as they were coming back, uh, they ended up pulling off to the side of the road. And she described how Emily had a son named Bobby Patrick. They were in the car and all of a sudden, you know, they'd fallen asleep for a period of time. They were woken up by a yellowish white light that that seemed like a trucker's headlight. It didn't seem like anything out of the ordinary. But then she heard this high pitched whining sound and she seemed paralyzed at the moment and it just kind of seemed to go on and on forever. She talked about how uh, it felt like her son was just being restless in the back seat. But what's interesting here is that, and, and what you're going to find is that the more that they talk to Jan, the more that they talk to her friends, it seems like Jan is like kind of at the center of all of this stuff. Like she's like patient zero and the people around her are being affected by alien beings. Right. She, she's the, she's the asymptomatic super spreader. Yeah, basically. And like, if you know the abduction phenomenon, you know that this is very out of the ordinary in that it doesn't happen to like the friends, you know, and in fact, uh, in most abduction accounts, when you read them, if you're with somebody, they're kind of put in this suspended animation and then they take you and they do whatever they're going to do with you. But not in this case. In this case, Jan's uh, lovers, her friends seem to play a part in every single one of the these messages. She, at a certain point during the paralysis, Emily talked about how she felt the car. It was kind of like swaying from side to side at one point. And in this high pitched sound, she heard a message that said, they're going to take you away. And what's interesting here is as they explore this experience. And again, this is through Emily's perspective. Jan isn't going to offer up much here. She describes how uh, there's an abduction event that's supposed to be that's taking place, but it shouldn't be happening. They're, they're not supposed to be here uh, is what she keeps saying over and over again. And she describes how there's these three beings. There's one, uh, they, they appear to be taller, but there there's two of them that are hanging back. And there's one of them that's right up by like the back window. And it's looking in the car and it sees Bobby Patrick in the back seat. And all of a sudden it's just absolutely fascinated. Who is this small human being? Why is it in the car? And the other beings that are with this one being that's just so enthralled keeps going over to it and arguing it, arguing with it, saying, we're not supposed to be here. We're not supposed to be doing this right now. We need to leave. 
Isn't that great? That, that's my favorite thing. I just I just picture them with a clipboard going, no, this I think no, we got the wrong address. You know, it's like, no, we gotta we gotta keep going. No, get hey, hey, Louie. <laughs> not not that car. We're not doing that. Get over here. What is he doing? Why is he over there? I don't know. Did someone get him back? We're we're already late. And eventually this being just starts to like kind of push down on the trunk of the car to see how this one small tiny human's going to react and then uh eventually they just go away um emily does describe that there's like a a, a lighted craft nearby off the off the side of the road but it's it's a case of you know mistaken abduction event right. um and there are like strange instances when emily I don't know if it's with this experience or another experience. She describes being outside the car and seeing her body on the inside, which makes it seem, you know, like uh, definitely the astral self has been taken from the body. Right, right. If the, in other words, if these aliens were the three stooges, I think Curly is the one who's up by the car, you know, trying to communicate with the kid, you know, and it's, it's Mo and Larry going, listen, you get back over here. We got to get over there and save our jobs. <laughs> Come on, you. <laughs> oh, man. Like, it's the weird ones that always get me. Like, have you heard the story of Alfred Berteau? He is this guy from England. He was uh, doing some night fishing uh, in, I think it was like 1980. And uh, he had his dog with him. And uh, he sees this, like, weird UFO. And it lands in these trees nearby. And he just like he's just, like, sitting there fishing. No problem. Doesn't doesn't worry about it. He thinks it's like military or something. And then he sees these like uh, beings. They're wearing like coveralls. Their faces are covered and they kind of just tell him to come with them. So he does. He goes into this UFO and uh, he hears this voice uh, after he's been in there for about 30 minutes and it tells him to step forward underneath this beam of light. So he does. And uh, he, he doesn't really know what it's doing, but, uh, you know, it seems to be like scanning his body or something like that. And then he hears a voice that says, you can go. You are too old and infirm for our purposes. Oh, my God. That is fantastic. <laughs> Rejected <laughs> yeah. from the yeah. intergalactic abduction survey. Yeah. Yeah. Just because he's too old. I mean, he had fought in a couple of world wars. Uh, you know, he, he was an old guy, he, like, uh, cut up some slack and, you know, these aliens got to come up and diss on him like that. It's bullshit. Well, what about, what about the, um, cause I'm trying to think, well, are there a lot of old abductees, but you know, okay, look, a Whitley apparently is still having communication with his visitors. Uh, he's not, he's mm -hmm. no spring chicken. And, uh, what about the, um, who was the, uh, love and saucers guy, the, um, Oh, Dave Huggins. Yeah, Dave yeah. Huggins. It seems like he it feels like he may still be having experiences and he's got to be up, you know, 80 or something. Yeah, uh, there are. Uh, it, it just seemed like, uh, you know, you go into the abduction lore and it's like, we're going to be here until you're like 45, 50 and then we're done with you. Right. We're done. But yeah, there are definitely those experiencers that seem to end up having contacts for like the the rest of their lives well and there's the, the the and they talk about it a lot in this book the um or at least in in the um in the sort of conclusions section uh the the recurring theme of uh the the aliens being interested in aspects of human reproduction right and 
and this is sort of when they started talking about um how how these women you know some of them were were in uh same sex relationships and um and then they began to speculate that well maybe that's what made them interesting to the aliens mm-hmm. um but, but yet at the same time well, you know there was one one of them had a child you know but i mean were they curious and like oh these are people from a a fringe you know uh you know cross section of of american society that's why we must study them and and it's funny because right. it that's very much probably how they were seen at the time and and then as decades go by uh, i'm not sure they're seen as they're not as fringe or as hidden a subgroup as they were in the 50s, for sure. Right, right, absolutely. The, the The complexities and the intricacies of this case are just, like, fascinating. Emily talks about how she had, you know, further experiences, um, how she would wake up in the middle of the night unable to move. And she describes uh, shorter beings that would uh, be in her room and... You know, they're they're not exactly like grays. Their eyes are big, but they're not like black, like the grays. And they have elongated faces. But she seems to be able to kind of like push them away at times. Uh, she describes them, quote, they were invariably small, about three feet high with large, bald, round heads. Their skin was light toned and their eyes were elongated and slanted. Their lips narrow, thin and long. Almost no nose was perceptible. They wore clothes of a shiny light material and they rather shimmered in the dark. Something that I think all of us can relate to. We all want to shimmer in the dark. But uh, apparently these aliens just have it going on with with that. And uh, who could blame them? You yeah. Know? Yeah. Um, well, <clears throat> I, again, it's, it's interesting how, well, a couple things. One is, um, the, you know, sort of the ability among some of these experiencers to, to sort of control the experience, actually reject it. Um, and then Sarah's repeated insistence that none of this ever scared her. Right. 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 You know, it's like, no, she kind of thought it was sort of neat and she kind of liked it. And she wasn't really feeling scared. And this is something no. that, that through hypnotic regression, like when that's what, that's when they discovered this, like something about the experience clearly bothered her and, 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 and wanted to work its way up into her conscious recall. But once it, right. it got there, her memory was not that of being terrified. It was sort of like, Whoa, okay. What's this experience? What's going on here? Right. The beings that Sarah interacted with, she describes them quote, his head is elongated. It's not even egg shaped. It's like an egg, but one that is really wider at the top or the bottom. It's oval. It's oblong. <laughs> she describes these beings wearing ski masks or something like it, but says it looks more like it's part of their skin, which is uh, which is very strange. Like uh, it's freaking me out just thinking about that. <laughs> the only thing that differentiates it are the eye holes. They are distinct and give Give it a mask-like quality. Uh, she describes the eyes as flesh-colored membranes, which no, no, we're not, we're not doing that. <laughs> at, uh, at one point, she describes movements behind these membranes, but okay, wh- whatever. The majority of these beings are approximately five feet tall, except for one, the leader, who was seven inches taller. And like that's always something that's interesting to me is like, 
why is the leader always taller than the other ones? Why is the hierarchy of these beings the broken down by height? What's the deal with that? Yeah, is that something we're we're bringing to it, or is that an aspect of their of their reality? Yeah, we we need to know. Like, someone needs to get down to the to the nitty gritty of this because I'm just confused and uh, it's just ridiculous. As um, Sarah goes on in other sessions, she described how she got the cancer cure on the craft in 1953 when she was taken to a conference room in the balcony area where the leader the quote-unquote five seven guy was looking down and just kind of you know uh making sure everything's running smoothly he's the guy in charge that's where she received this cancer cure she talks about how in the past life she was a uh, body worker or something like that. Someone who worked on the body, replacing body parts uh, now, that it just got very weird. It got very weird. Well, well, was that, I mean, that was information that, that the, that the entities told her, they started talking about her past life. It kind of like it didn't go into a great deal. Um, but yeah, it's. I mean, um, again, it's just interesting how these these things begin to overlay. You know, uh, information gained from a séance, information gained from a UFO abduction, begin to sound very alike. But but mm-hmm. it's always the physical aspect that's interesting. The chairs they were sitting in were were suspended from the ceiling, right? And yeah. it's a, like these these bars sort of sort of came down in a curving way, almost like a, a ride at an amusement park. And then at the end of them, there were these little sort of chair like enclosures that you would sit in. But they but the chairs weren't supported from the bottom. They were they were hanging from the top of the room. Right. Mm-hmm. OK. Yeah. Um, I mean, again, why that description? You know, why? just why that would be a way i mean maybe it has something to do with these things traveling through space you know that that's a more secure way so that people don't fall out of their chairs i don't know um but but i also love that it's a conference room so that there are certain yeah. things that again feel like our experience like well come into the conference room while we discuss you know imparting this information to you and they were they were so um uh uh for, for, for these entities, this information was so manifestly obvious. They were like, guys, mm-hmm. it's not that hard. It's vinegar. Yeah. You just add a little vinegar to the cancer and it goes away. Just do it. Simple as that. That's all it takes. Get some vinegar, throw it on that tumor and you're good to go. Um, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I appreciate that they're trying to help us. It's frustrating that it is not more effective Again, I it's like we said earlier, I'm still waiting for that one bit of of revolutionary scientific knowledge that we get. Yeah. <laughs> some of these uh, some of these aspects, it's like aliens seem to understand absurdism and I love it. I love it so much. I don't understand why they understand that better than they understand everything else. Maybe they just back their way into the absurdist nature of all these experiences as it relates to how we perceive them, but just absurdism comedians. You could learn something from (laughs) just reading an alien abduction. You really could. Well, the other thing is, okay, well think of it this way. Um, I, I'm kind of taking a half step back to the, to this notion of of these uh, scientific breakthroughs, 
Okay. Yeah. Because people look at this case and they're trying to somehow relate what happened to what's going on in the people's lives. So it's like, well, maybe, mm-hmm. maybe on some level, Sarah intuited that that Jan was was going to be facing a, a cancer threat in the future, and and so in in this sort of psychic anticipation of that, she she really wanted to be able to cure it for emotional reasons, and so she created this dreamlike. You know, or 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 when she interacted with this exterior intelligence, she brought those anxieties to bear so that they they were addressed by the visitors, and, but mm-hmm. but not effectively, but addressed psychologically and emotionally. Okay, 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 whatever. However, people, humans, have had scientific breakthroughs that occur in the way yeah. the creative breakthroughs do. It's like, oh, I figured out how to end my story. And other people have described waking up and realizing, oh, wait a second, if I go to the lab tomorrow and I do this instead of that, maybe that will be the answer to creating the vaccine or the thing or the whatever. I mean, there's there's many, many mm-hmm. stories about, about people having scientific breakthroughs in, in the same way that people have creative breakthroughs. But those people never – the breakthrough is not presented to them wrapped up in the gift wrapping of an alien encounter. Right. So you have people who have breakthroughs. You have people who have alien experiences where they have faux breakthroughs. Because I'll tell Mm -hmm. you, I also haven't heard of people having creative breakthroughs. I've not heard of abductees suddenly coming back and writing the great American novel. Whitley Strieber definitely didn't. He definitely didn't. He was writing his best novels before his experiences yeah. or before yeah, the Wolf ones and that Hunger. were of the modern yeah. age. Yeah. 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 Wolf and Hunger. Uh, those those are some actually pretty good books. But yeah. like after that, like you get into like Majestic, the Alien Hunter series, like all yeah. this like weird stuff. Yeah. It just kind of trails off. But uh, I mean, Whitley Strieber is a great writer. I think he is amazingly mm-hmm. talented as a writer, both as a novelist and in just, you know, conveying, you know, his, his abduction experiences. Um, yeah. But, um, but now, now, but which brings me to my other vexing point, people who have had near death experiences often do come back with newfound creative abilities. Right. So, Why? so in a way, but but not the aliens. And here's something else, Rob. Damn it! And I expect answers, by the way. Okay. the The alien abduction is the only kind of transcendent experience which seems to require a big chunk of our earthly time. The near death experience happens in an instant. Right. You know, I'm, um, I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm, 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 I'm underwater, you know, this thing happens. Uh, I experience all this stuff. I come back or, or I'm, I'm in a car accident or I'm about to be in a car accident and, and I fly up above and get all this information Then I'm back down in the car and I'm being pried out of the car by paramedics. Um, there's no missing time with a near death experience. Right. There's no missing time with a, um, with a ghost encounter of any kind. Right. No one has ever said right. I was walking down the road, looked over, had a time slip and, and suddenly hours went by. I mean, am I correct? Do you know of stories that are, that, that it's like I had a ghost encounter and then suddenly eight hours have gone by. 
Nope. No. Why does this one kind of experience require so much human time? I think it comes down to the force behind it. So like you, you if you're part of a near-death experience, it's generally something very physical happening to you, whether you're, you know, like whether it's an accident or what. It, it just seems like when it comes to an abduction, it, it requires another type of intelligence to initiate this thing. So maybe it's like through the process of initiation in which you are abducted and, and experience this, that is the cause of that. But uh, yeah, like I don't think you get that with like DMT trips. I don't think you get that with anything else other than the abduction phenomenon. And okay. I, it, it has to be I like theory. If it, Okay. Theory. Okay. Um, we talk about the astral body. Okay. Yep. But um, often I, I think of it as a thing. You've got your physical body, then you got your astral body, and and the astral body has the near-death experience. You know, you go out of body, and that's what's going on in the uh, UFO experience. But what if it's just not one? What if inside you there's like multiple versions of your consciousness in, 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 in a whole sliding scale of physicality, okay? Right. And maybe the aliens need the most physical version of your soul that they can get. So it, it's, it's a very dense version of your soul. And that's the one yep. they need. And, and therefore, they've really got to come down into human time to do what they do. Whereas a near-death experience, maybe that's a, a far more gossamer uh uh, version of your interior self and and therefore it, it 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 doesn't require the investment of mortal physical time it, it it can it can operate on this other level that's just almost instantaneous what do you think mm. of that well you know maybe maybe that is the case i think above dmt trips above um, near-death experiences and, and stuff. Uh, abductions require the most amount of physicality behind them in, in a way, and it, it would make sense. Like It's almost like the proof is in like the physical body, the fact that it has some evidence that it went through this experience. Although most of the time that evidence is not physical. It's, you know, psychic or it's uh, um, psychologically you know, jarring trauma, all that kind of stuff. But well, that's, there is yeah. that. Well, that's that's interesting also because it it, it feels like um, abduction, the like abduction experiences almost have to be unearthed a little bit. I mean, they're they're, mm-hmm. they're the ones most associated with uh, hypnotic regression. I don't know right. of. Do you know of any cases of a person who? who has remembered a near-death experience during a hypnotic regression. Near-death no, experiences don't seem can... to be buried like that. They seem to be pretty much, you know, you people wake I up mean, and they're... go, I just had a very vivid experience that I remember consciously and can relate to you, and they don't require a lot of probing, right? Right. Yeah, it's just like something that's there. But uh, yeah, that's uh, that's an interesting interesting aspect on all of that um well, what are we gonna yeah, do about it? we gotta uh, we gotta we gotta write a book or something there, there there's my we're geniuses we gotta make some money off this right so there's gotta be a way yeah you're right you know enough of this free shit let's uh let's go where the big bucks are you know, know. and uh 
publish a book. I, you know, they're, they're selling like hotcakes these days, books, you know, a lot of people are buying. I'm looking at, yeah, yeah. For, for the listener at home, what what you're, what you're not getting right now is that, is that uh, Rob and I are having a conversation, but we're looking at each other through this uh, program called Zencaster. It's kind of like zoom. So you've all done zoom by now, I assume. And, but the great thing is that because he's on the East Coast and I'm on the West Coast, it's been getting darker and darker where he is. And so his entire yeah. background has now fallen away. And now he's yep. like he's only lit by his computer screen in his glasses and, and a little yep. bit the glow on his face. And it's just becoming like weirder and weirder and darker and scarier. And now he's just like like some mad shaman in his cave. And, and the screen light is like a fire, you know, kind of, you know. On the floor of the cave, and and he's just taking on this this very sort of you know spiritually exalted yet mysterious wizard like uh, visage. Yeah, this is how I transcend the mortal plane uh, into whatever next form this is. Absolutely, yeah, you're you're, you're definitely evolving in front of me. What's interesting about Emily's experiences is that. She doesn't describe these beings as aliens. She never claims that they're aliens of any kind. She kind of describes them as like form fitting, kind of like uh, amorphous in a way. Like they can be whatever they want to be, but they're not aliens and they're really not like us. They could just be whatever they want to be. She was working with uh, Dr. William McCall, who was the second hypnotherapist to be brought in. And uh, he was also the guy that conducted the hypnosis on the uh, alien brain guys, too. So, uh, you know, it was interesting to see a, a familiar uh, name here and there. But as uh, they're still trying to get Jan involved in the in the hypnosis stage, Emily comes forward and she talks about how she has two friends that had a really jarring experience. Their names are Lori and Joe. This was during the investigation that their incident ended up happening and happened in like, I believe 75, not long after Ann Druffles started to investigate this case. But uh, she talked about how uh, at least Lori ended up phoning her one night, uh, just scared out of her wits. And, um, the, she and her roommate Joe, they had gone to bed at about 1045 that night. They ended up waking up at like 1230. They were like just terrified. She talked about how two men just came into her bedroom. They were and like they were concerned. There were instances of break ins and rapes in the neighborhood at the time. And, and Lori thought that's what was happening to her. But the whole incident was like dreamlike. It was bizarre. and. She Lori talked about how it was weird for her because she was paralyzed the entire time. So it was definitely out of the ordinary for her. Her eyes were open, but she just couldn't move. And then one of the men came over to the bed and stood over her. This being wasn't very tall and his skin was very white. His head was large, round and bald. Uh, he kept asking her to come with him, which was uh, kind of a theme in Emily's uh, story at one point where the being wanted her to come with them. She resisted. Uh, Lori talks about how she started to hear this very high, unbearably loud whining noise. And then she started to create a noise herself. And then uh, apparently this was uh, enough to scare the beings away. 
that's where it gets very like new agey is that she talks about how she has this sound within herself that she can create. It's a lower sound that kind of goes against the high pitch sound that these aliens have. And she uses it to uh, fight them off. Yeah. Well, I mean, it makes a certain degree of sense that there should be a way if we're primarily these dense physical beings that, that, that if, if we can, if we're prepared for this stuff, um, that there might be a way to to mentally resist it. Um, that that doesn't seem so strange. I mean, we can do lucid dreaming. So if if mm-hmm. we can bring our consciousness into a a subconscious realm, w- which might be their entry point into our minds and souls, then then I, I don't know. This doesn't sound totally crazy to me. What about you? Uh, no, I mean, I, we're already along for the ride. I definitely think, you know, it's possible. Uh, if you're getting into experiences where people are experiencing high pitch sounds and they're fighting them off with low pitch sound, like it it just seems like it's par for the course with this stuff. But again, it's not something that I've heard described in a lot of abduction accounts. And again, it's not like you find a lot of abduction accounts of people who, you know, have this necessarily complete metaphysical take on things before they started to experience things. It's usually kind of after, but it's in the realm of possibility when it comes to this case. So, I mean, it, it it's the reason that Ann Druffel wrote How to Defend Yourself Against Alien Abduction. It really is. It's because of incidents like this. I'd be really interested. Um, you know, Ann Druffel was at the um, MIT conference. Right. Right. And, um, and I think she taught, I think there was a talk where some mm-hmm. of these, you know, the, which, which I think is great because I think at, at that conference, there were people who had had these experiences who were very traumatized by them. And I think the notion mm-hmm. that they could have some agency and sort of, um, defend themselves in some way probably right. really helped them. Right. But I haven't heard many, many, many stories of people who then who then talk about this like like I don't know have you stories of people who are like I was a repeat abductee until I learned how to defend myself and after that I either you know participated more actively in the abduction experience or mm. I or or I just shut it down I was just like nope this will not happen ever again and they never happen again well, I mean, in, in this case, they talked, uh, some of the uh, witnesses talked about how uh, the beings would continue to come. They would tell them, no, I'm not going with you. And then eventually they just stopped coming. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that's uh, possible. It's part of it. And the, the abduction phenomenon was framed as an experience that you experience. You have no control over it. So. I imagine like it's it's empowering to hear people being able to resist this kind of stuff. Right. But to have like enough cases to put it into a book. Well, you know, that is what it is. I mean, it's not the only thing that Ann Druffel did. It's just where a large portion of her research went to. She wrote a, a fantastic biography of James E. McDonald, who, you know, fought for science during the 1960s when it came to UFO accounts. 
and how it was worthy to be studied that way. And um, yeah, it's a really fantastic biography. This book is actually really fantastic and you should definitely read it. Uh, she is objective throughout most of it until you get to her final conclusions in which uh, it definitely takes a, uh, the, uh, the, the car, you know, definitely goes well, off a cliff yeah. uh, by that point. I mean, but. it's, it's, it's interesting. Like you say, um, it, it, you know, as an investigator, she seems totally solid, you know, and the mm-hmm. way she deals with people, you know, and, and her motives and her methods all totally solid. Same, same thing with D Scott Rogo. Um, mm-hmm. then when they get into their conclusions, that's when it's like, well, now we're talking <clears throat> literally interpretation and that you can debate forever. Um, mm-hmm. but, but as, as individuals and investigators and writers, these are, these are solid people. Uh, D Scott yep. Rogo, tons of books, it, it, mostly in, in the, in the realm of parapsychology and he, and, and co he co-wrote with Raymond Bayless, one of my favorite books, phone calls from the dead, right. which if there's have, a better uh, title for a book, I don't know what it is. That's just like, Oh, I- I'm in. I have two that I just picked up recently. Uh, they are a case book of otherworldly music. Oh, <laughs> so, oh the NAD yeah. books. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, I mean that that kind of stuff has always been interesting to me. So uh, you know, it's going to be fun to dive into those books eventually. Yeah. But uh, speaking of the um, out of body type experiences, Jan, she wasn't very good subject for hypnosis but she she would talk about these dreams that she would have and she started having them in in 1955 after uh emily ended up moving in with her and she would talk about how she would have these experiences where she would have these push and pull kind of moments with intelligences that she couldn't see but she felt that they were trying to like separate her mind from her body these experiences persisted until she just basically got angry and told him to go away. And I mean, they did for, for a number of years. You have like three witnesses in this case describing how uh, it, it felt like their, their mind was being removed from their body. Like this is a, a common feature of this case. Jan just never became a very good subject for hypnosis, but uh, her dreams definitely added an element that contributed to this case was, I think, a welcomed. uh, It didn't detract anything. And, And again, they were positing that Jan was patient zero of all of this. And again, we're talking about people who aren't family. They're not related. Like, uh, over and over again, we're told that, uh, abductions run in familial lines. Well, not in this case, at least not in the case of a, a, a bloodline or anything like that. They're all women. They all are either friends or have been lovers uh, to, to one another. And like, yeah, but that's the only connection really, you know? Yeah. yeah no no one is related. No one's a cousin or anything. Um, yeah. It wasn't, was it Emily? I think it was Emily who in her, hypnotic regression got to a point where she sort of hit this wall where it's like, Oh, there's this thing mm-hmm. they told me not to tell you. Yeah. <laughs> Which was yeah. fascinating. I mean, that was like my favorite yeah. part. I'm like, what is it? And they're like, well, you could tell us it's okay. Well, if you were going to tell us, what would it be? Like they kept trying to find right. all these workarounds to this mental firewall that had been set up. 
And then they sort of realized, oh, this is like, there's an element of her personality that's like, I don't tell secrets. If someone tells me not to tell something, I don't tell it. And so mm-hmm. there's, it, it, it's not totally artificial and imposed by the exterior intelligences. This is partially me and my psychological makeup. When I promise to keep a secret, I keep a secret. And that's why they couldn't get through. And they never got through, did they? No, they never did. They just kind of let it go. They determined that she was not going to be, you know, an effective subject uh, to get more information out of. But uh, oh, God, it was so um, frustrating. Yeah, uh, it, it always gets frustrating at a certain point when that happens. But the last two witnesses, Lori and Joe, they each had experiences together. And Lori actually had one experience when she was younger in which like a being appeared at the side of her bed and she was laying on her side in bed and she knew these beings were there. They were talking to her and they were basically kind of trying to prep her for the experience that she was going to have. At one point, the being turns her on her back and they eventually, uh, as the way she describes it, lets her open her eyes and she sees this being over her with long spindly limbs and uh, an elongated face, very similar to the short beings that uh, Emily has described. And, you know, they're doing stuff uh, and eventually she's able to move a finger and they disappear. And Lori has other experiences, but the main one is one that she experienced with Joe in the summer of 1975. This is where you get into the high-pitched frequency sounds. Joe definitely seemed more of like a a, uh, casual observer. She's like the only one that seems a little more casually there in the story, and, and Lori is the one that they're actually there for. But they talked about how they, like, like I said before, they went to bed and they had this experience not long after they went to bed. They heard this high pitched sound. Both of them ended up hearing it. Uh, and Lori was the one that really promoted the idea that I have the sound within me that I can create that uh, can fight against the sound that these aliens are making. Both Lori and Joe ended up attesting to hearing this sound. And as the experience later ratchets up through the hypnosis after hearing the sound they both got out of bed they went into the kitchen they checked everything out to make sure everything was all good and they turned back around to head to the bedroom to go back to bed and that's where they got a little there was trepidation there joe was in front Lori was behind her they were both scared and they're they're going into the bedroom and that's when beings appear in the bedroom Joe's just kind of, she's kind of there. Uh, Lori claims that she was on the ship at one point, uh, but they're taken into the this UFO. They're put under an examination. And at one point, one of the beings asks Lori if she wants to go and essentially see their mothership of all things, which is like somewhere in space, I guess. At least that's how she makes it out to be. But there's this theme in Lori's case and in Emily's case in which the being asks these experiencers to go with them. And they say, no, uh, one of them says, uh, and I believe it's Lori says, I'm not ready. I'm not ready for this. So she just continues to um, fight them off. And, and eventually they just stop visiting altogether. But that pretty much wraps up 
the experiences that uh, all of these women have. Beyond the book, there isn't much that is added to it. Uh, It seemed by the time that they had published it, their experiences were pretty much done with because they were not going to be a participant in them anymore. And I mean, with Sarah's experience, it's just seemed to be like a one and done kind of scenario. You were on, you were brought onto this ship. You had this one experience. This is how it changed your life. But she never talked about having really any further experiences. It was Jan, it was Emily, and it uh, it was Lori. And that was pretty much it. What was cool to me was uh, what Anne Truffle calls the Tahunga Milu, where, where she kind of breaks down, okay, there's a lot of weird stuff happening up here you know, during this time and even going back, you know, decades and decades into the past. And, and then she sort of points out mm-hmm. like, okay, well, there were, you know, UFOs were, were reported, you know, in Burbank and Glendale. And then if you just continue going straight North from there, you get into the Tahunga area, you know, in the, in the foothills and, and yep. the low hills of the Sierra Madres and, or the San Gabriel uh, mountains. And, um, and all of these places are so close. They're just where I go all the time. I, I mean, I'm just, I have relatives in Glendale and Burbank. I work in Burbank. That's where most of the studios are, you know, Disney Studios, Universal Studios. They're all right there. If you go to Universal Studios, you're right, you're right in the middle of, of a, a ton of UFO activity. And to live there and to be driving around these areas, you know, when Scott Philbrook uh, from Astonishing Legends, when he was living out in this area, you know, he wasn't that far from Silmar at where where there have been, you know, other reported experiences there. They're all over the place. And and when we talked about Orfeo Angelucci in the, in the Los mm-hmm. Feliz area, um, again, that's just – that's even closer to where I am. And I, I've, I've driven up and down the streets and through the intersections where he was chasing the UFO that that he saw, and 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 following it into Griffith Park. I mean, all this stuff is happening right here. Guess what? Richie's never seen a thing. <laughs> you're you're not the one. You're kind of like the researchers, like Bud Hopkins, like John Mack. You're not supposed to experience the stuff. You're just supposed to be interested in it and talk about it and all that stuff. Yeah, that's yeah. that's your role in all this. They're not interested in you because you no. know what? They know first and foremost, you're a goddamn writer. You're going to write some goddamn screen screenplay, and it's gonna it's gonna expose them, and they don't want that. Yeah, yeah. Always the Salieri, never the Mozart. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I mean, I like Salieri better than Mozart anyway, so, uh, you know, take that for what you will. But a good book, right? Yeah, no, actually a really great book. And uh, what are some of the the key standouts of this book for you and of this investigation? What what things, you know, as we as we wrap up here, what things stand out to you? Well, like I said, I'm always looking for the for the the detail I've never heard before. So the things that really stayed with mm-hmm. me were the high pitched noise, um, and then I mm-hmm. like I like to sort of connect them to other, you know, phenomenon like oh, like like I guess people who have seen UFOs sometimes report a noise, but mostly they report the the lack of noise, and then um, what are the noises that people hear during a near death experience? You know, do they hear? a high pitched sound. And apparently there are sounds related to near death experiences. I didn't realize this, um, a whole variety, mm. including music. People don't tend to describe hearing music in relationship to UFO encounters. 
Uh, so that was interesting to me the the ability to the ability to fight off the the experience was interesting uh, because it, I I haven't read a lot about that I haven't read Anne's other book specifically that centers on that aspect of the phenomenon so I thought that was really interesting again I love the fact that it was happening practically in my backyard mm-hmm. so so th- there were there were. You know, and and again, just it was nice to see another example where it didn't seem like hypnosis was misused. I almost right. feel like things were done better. Like 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 people were coming at there were a lot of investigators who were coming at this in a very pragmatic, sane, non-dogmatic way. I think I think certainly at the time that you know Andruffel was doing that. Um, so was so was Rogo. They were just getting in there and just trying to, you know, get, get the information as cleanly as they could. Uh, so that, uh, all of that stuff really appealed to me. When you talk about the abductions, they generally go in two different camps. They head either in the very materialistic camp, the kind of, of research that Bud Hopkins was doing that, uh, David Jacobs was right. doing, but their evidence, the way that they collected their evidence, they treat, they seem to try and prove their point above a, a more objective investigation. And it's not to say that uh, Bud Hopkins wasn't an objective investigator at any point in his career. I think he definitely was. I think once the, um, uh, once you get into the Brooklyn bridge abduction territory, that's when you see a good investigator go down a really dark path that seems to, it, it, there's a lot of implicit bias in that. And I mean, David Jacobs started by writing one of the most, um, at least for its time, one of the best books about the history of UFOs, the UFO controversy in America. And then he takes this turn uh, going into like the threat and, and, and uh, these aliens are lying to us and they're, uh, they're, they're trying to steal our, our, our bodies and, yeah, and all right. this stuff. And, and, People's and, fetus, fetuses are being harvested yeah. and, and grown yeah. and, and, all, and all that. Look, and, and I get, like, I get where that comes from because yeah. As was talked about in this book, there's always been a a this overlay of interest in human reproduction that mm-hmm. that has been a feature of uh you know 20th century ufology. So I, I right. but but it always feels to me like it it's that it's that human impulse to like, oh, this is it. This has got to be it. This is the answer. And then you just start you you start adding more of yourself to the theories and 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 you start cherry picking information and now you're you're pushing your agenda and calling it the alien agenda yeah and and it's 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 tough to just really stand back it's like it's like the you know the bigfoot stuff it's like you know no bigfoot is a flesh and blood animal you know and and when when you become so wrapped up in proving that and bringing back a Bigfoot body, that's when you start only hearing that mm. aspect of the reports and you don't hear the weirder stuff, which which when you do open your ears to that, there's a lot of really weird stuff associated with Bigfoot phenomenon and Bigfoot stories and encounters. So if you really, really try to be a good Fortean and keep your ears open and don't fall into theory and dogmatism, you do just find yourself mm-hmm. standing, you know, knee deep in a pool of weirdness. Yeah, absolutely. And 
like the the other aspect of that is the consciousness route that this is related to consciousness the kind of stuff that john mack and and a lot of the metaphysical researchers that have looked into this have, have gone and like this case definitely seems to veer more in that direction yeah sure there's a, a materialistic side to it but most of the experiences don't necessarily need the um the physical aspect to um, uh, really present themselves here like that's always going to be the struggle with that uh, particular leaning is how does the physical weigh in with the metaphysical experience where yeah. do those things cross and i don't know that we're ever going to find that maybe maybe we will but um i just don't think that that side is ever going to present itself in a way that is going to be uh, you know good enough and acceptable enough for for us to uh, uh, apply into the into this well, type of theory but i mean mac definitely yeah uh it's interesting that he came to well that the ufo phenomenon came to him because uh, uh if you like the the new um biography about him true true believer it's it's really really great um uh ralph wrote uh ralph lumenthal wrote a really uh it's a really great book but uh uh the more that you delve into it, uh, the guy was so anti-nuclear. It's not surprising that aliens chose him. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. They, 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 the aliens also seem to be very anti-nuclear for sure. Yeah, um, yeah. I don't know. I, I like. I, I get totally physical, and I get totally not physical and consciousness based. It, but, but the really vexing part is the partial physicality of mm. of all of this stuff of everything from ufos to bigfoot to poltergeist phenomenon it's that it's that well sometimes it's more physical than at other times that's the one it's right. that again that sort of middle ground that's really hard to sort of drop anchor on and just go okay well we're just going to have to accept that sometimes it's physical and sometimes it's not. And sometimes it's, you know, anywhere in between to varying degrees. Um, that seems so unmoored. It's, it's, it's hard for me personally to comfortably be there. And I've only gotten there by teaching myself, hey, dude, sometimes it's partially physical. Like every day I have to wake up and read a piece of paper that says, dude, sometimes it's partially physical or temporarily physical. And I just go, okay, that's, that's the thing. And I just try to, I try to keep that in, in the mix when I'm reading all of these books. I mean, that's, uh, that's completely fair. And uh, it's always going to be this vexing thing about this whole entire mystery. And, the materialistic aspect and why, why, and, and maybe we'll get to the point where we stop obsessing over that particular part, but I doubt that'll be coming anytime soon. No, cause it's not, cause that's our entire life is based on we're physical beings and we're wondering if we can exist as non-physical beings after death. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Well, we could go on and on about this, but I, I think we did this one, Rich. I think we uh, we do, we knocked this one out of the park. Uh, we brought the folks uh, an, an endlessly entertaining abduction uh, account 
so before we get out of here, Rich, what what do you got going on these days, man? What do, what are you guys doing? Uh, what, what's happening with Titans? Right we now? we are uh, right smack in the middle. It feels like of of producing season three of Titans, which has been the season that will never end because we were on the, on the very cusp of beginning to film one year ago when all of this yeah. hit and it delayed uh, physical production for six seven months. But during that time, we continued to meet and 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 break these episodes. But we were doing it at a slower rate over a longer period of time. I have no idea. I like I cannot evaluate if that's made the the scripts better, worse, or if they're exactly the same. Um, we've right. tried to make them better, and we've we've tried be, because we've had the opportunity to sort of go back and forth. It's like, oh, here's an idea in episode ten. Well, we've got time to go back and now influence the script or the production of episode five. Okay, great. We've 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 had that ability a little bit more, but right now we're in the we're in the middle of producing season three. See, uh, seasons one and two are available in their entirety on HBO Max, and in June, um, I'm sorry, uh, July, HBO Max will premiere. Uh, season three of Titans, and it'll. I believe we're going to try to drop three episodes on night one, so you'll get you, you'll sort of get launched in with those three, and then the subsequent ten will air uh, weekly after that throughout the uh, the balance of the summer. So we're we're doing it, and they've been producing episodes up in Toronto uh, in, in, with COVID protocols, and and the episodes are coming out great. I've seen the first four, and they're fantastic. So, so I'm like, oh, okay, good. The, you know, even even with all of the, uh, the 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 challenges and roadblocks and 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 safety measures, still looks still looks like Titans. Looks even better. So uh, I'm pretty excited. Excellent, folks. You better you better mark your calendars right now. Get yourself signed up for HBO Max. It, it's coming. It's coming. You're, you're, you're going to be in for it. Uh, and, and in the meantime, you need to go back and you need to watch the first two seasons of Titans because it deserves a rewatch. If you haven't watched them, if you've watched them already, oh, yeah, for sure. So rich, uh, where can people find you on the internet? What's the best way for people to find you on the internet? Um, you know, don't, don't find me on Facebook. I'm not really there. So don't, don't, right. don't get, don't be fooled by imitations. If you think you found me on Facebook, uh, just, just back away slowly and, and, uh, find me on Twitter uh, at Richard Haddam and, and, and please, you know, uh, tag me and Rob and, uh, give us a UFO story. Give us a contact story. Give us a, uh, you know, a, a tell us your weird encounter, uh, with, uh, creatures from the sky. Uh, I, I, I don't think we're getting enough of those. No, we're definitely not. Uh, tag us in them. Uh, we'll be glad, happy to to read them. And maybe you know, if you if you send enough of them our way, we'll do an episode. Uh, That'd be uh, great. All of them. Hell yeah, hell yeah. Um, in the meantime, uh, this has been the Our Strange Skies podcast. Thank you all for listening. Uh, our logo is by the great Desdemona. Our theme song is by Big Cats, uh, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And finally. Don't forget to look up because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies or in Rich Haddam's own backyard. I keep in looking gray, up. We trust. I keep looking up. <laughs> <laughs>
Media.